friends, welcome to the Mini Dairy Goat Podcast, all things miniature dairy goat. Not too big, not too small, just right. I'm your host, Carrie O'Neill. Join me as I guide you through the enchanting and addicting world of miniature dairy goats. Hello, goat friends. Welcome to the Mini Dairy Goat Podcast. So excited for this episode. It's been in the works for a long time, and I am super excited to announce our two guests that we have on today. Our topic is the history of mini dairy goats. And we're here today talking to Pat Fountain Fields and Jeannie Carson. And they've dialed in. We've had some IT trouble, but we've got this all worked out, and we are excited to have them tell their story. So before we get started, um, Jeannie, what's been going on on your farm? Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to. Well, um, I still am raising mini Nubians. I've recently added mini Mamanches to the mix, mostly because they're easier to deal with sometimes than the Nubians. But um, I only have about 12 goats at this point, six of each breed, and it's kind of a nice number. Um, and where's your farm located? Where, yeah. where are you at, Janie? Can you hear me? Yeah. Where, where's your farm at? Where are you located? Oh, okay. Um, my, I'm in the Willamette Valley in Oregon between Albany and Corvallis. We've been here for oh, quite a few years since about 1977. We were in New Mexico for a short time, but for the most part, we've been in Oregon. Cool. Well, uh, Pat, I know you are not in goats anymore, but you've had some interesting adventures as of late. You want to tell us a little bit about where you're located now? Well, yes. I um, When I started my adventure in goats, I was in the Adirondack Mountains of upstate New York. But um, I am now a southerner. I moved to Florida, and then I relocated in uh, 2017 to Southern Virginia, and I'm still in miniatures, only this time it's horses, and I do a program called Pony Partners, and we are on Facebook, if you're curious, and we're looking uh, probably two or three times a week, we travel to the elementary schools, even during COVID, and take miniature horses to do therapy with the special education classes, so um, it's been a lot of fun to do that, and um, you know, I I recently ran into a miniature dairy goat breeder here in Louisa, Virginia, which is kind of what got me thinking about the old days again, too. So it's interesting that we should connect again. Yeah, I'm so excited. I reached out to a few folks. And as both of you know, as we discussed, the mini dairy goats are just really blossoming as of late. And I decided to start this podcast and really wanted to have an episode, the history of mini dairy goats. Like, how did this get started? Like, how how did uh, people think of this? How did the goat registries get started? And that's when I uh, tracked you two down, stalked you on Facebook, found you. And uh, we're here today to help you guys um, share your stories with all of the mini dairy goat enthusiasts out there. So... What I thought we'd do is just kind of, we'll start uh, start with you, Jeannie, and just tell us a little bit about 
what you were doing back in your goat herd, just kind of take us back in history, and then we'll turn it over to Pat and let her kind of tell her what she was doing, and then you guys can just chit chat and kind of share how y'all connected and how this all got started. So I'll turn it over to you, Jeannie. Okay. Um, I started raising goats in about 1977, actually 73. I was living in New Hampshire then. And that's when I got my first goats more as pets than anything else. But um, then I moved to Indiana and increased my herd for quite a while. And I, that's when I got my first registered Nubians. I didn't start uh, showing goats until late in the 80s. But I found that my goats didn't do very well because I preferred a smaller goat. And I would get comments like, Excellent mammary, beautiful goat, loses on stature. So I stopped showing my goats and just enjoyed them because I didn't want a big goat. And as we all know, they kept getting bigger and bigger. Um, we moved to Oregon in 1977, and that's uh, when I started increasing my herd. And when my youngest son was about 10, he decided that he had to have something different for 4-H and he wanted La Manchas. So after I got a couple of La Manchas, he was at the state fair and I saw an ad in a local paper about Nigerian dwarfs, which I had never heard of. So while he was showing his goats, I went up and looked at them and ended up bringing three of them home with me. So for quite a few years, I played around with the Nigerians. But I still had a few, I had a couple of Manchas and a couple of Nubians. And one year, one of my Nubians decided to get herself bred to one of my uh, Nigerian bucks. And my son wanted to show that goat at the fair, and there was no place to put it. So I showed it as a kinder goat, figuring that 4-H, it wasn't that big a deal. And of course, it did very well against the kinder goats, which was rather embarrassing at the time. But it sent me in a new direction, um, starting to think that it was nice to have a smaller size Nubian in my herd. Jeannie, and then share, my son's La Mancha. What? Jeannie, share with the, um, the, the listeners, what is a kinder goat? Some of, some of our listeners might kinder not know. Goat is a, a kinder goat is a pygmy Nubian cross. Okay, so and pygmy they were Nubian. Developed originally, they were originally developed as a um, multi-purpose goat because they had more meat and they had milk. And there still is a kinder goat association. They haven't um, caught on as well as the uh, many Nubians have, but they, they are still around and some people really like them. So, so you show, so he, he, you entered it at the fair and, and then what happened? Well, the judges really liked it, but of course they were dairy goat judges and they preferred the more dairy style on it. So, um, at that point, I decided that I wouldn't show it again because I didn't want to compete against. There were a couple kinders there, and I felt bad about competing against the kids. So we didn't do that again. But it was just a couple of years later that I started realizing that there were other people that had Nigerian Nubian crosses, as well as La Mancha crosses, which we ended up having eventually as well. Um, and that's when I started thinking about how to register them. There was only one registry at that point that was taking them, and that was IDGR, which was a very old registry that registered just about any goat breeds that you came across. 
And there were a couple of other breeders in Oregon that were registering with them as well. But then I started looking into the possibilities of starting a registry. I was raising rabbits as well, and I realized that there really wasn't much to starting a registry. It was just a matter of keeping track of the breedings and the animals. And that's when I started MDGA. And what year was that when MDG, when you started MDGA? I think it was 1995. Okay. Yeah. For listeners, the MDGA, we've gone over this a few times, but that's the miniature dairy goat registry. And we will have a representative from MDGA on the podcast here very soon to kind of talk about that registry. But we're uh, talking here with the, the founder of it. So that's pretty cool. Um, so how did that uh, get, how did, how was that process to start the registry? Well, there was, there was a publication at that point uh, called Ruminations and also Dwarf Digest. And also um, before Ruminations, there was another one called, I'm trying to think of the name of it, Footnotes. And they were, they catered to the Nigerian dwarfs. So I advertised in there and told people what I was doing. At that point, I was also an AGS judge, so I was going to a lot of shows in various states, and um, I was just surprised to see how many people were actually doing the same thing, crossing the larger breeds with the smaller breeds, because as we all know, a lot of us are on smaller homesteads and didn't have room for the bigger goats. So it kind of blossomed from there, and I, I know when I started out, I didn't sell many goats for a long time because I wasn't sure, especially with the Niger the Nubians, that it was going to work. Mm -hmm. I didn't know if we'd get the breed types back into the animals. So I waited quite a few years before I started selling animals, but other people were. And as we can see now, many, many years later, it did work. Yeah. There's some amazing miniature Nubians now. Definitely. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, that's kind of the, the genie origin story. So uh, let's uh, roll over and uh, look for the, the Pat origin story. So Pat, tell us about how, what you were doing at this time with your goats. Well, um, I started raising goats, I think 1979. That's what my old website says. And I started out with uh, crossbred just like everybody else did. And, uh, you know, I started learning about, you know, quality and, you know, better udders and those types of things. My little place was on an acre and a third. So right off the bat, you're going to know I can't have a lot of animals. And so um, I was looking for a couple of animals to have some milk and that type of thing. And like Lay's potato chips, you can't have just one goat. And besides which they're herd animals. So um, I got quite interested in breeding and the genetics and that type of thing. I tried a couple of other breeds and I thought, well, here's what I ought to do is I ought to get the smaller ones because then I can have more in my little barn in my space. And I, uh, I toyed with uh, very briefly with pygmies and found out very quickly that they're not dairy goats. Um, and, you know, there really weren't a lot of other things. And just then coming kind of onto the scene um, in the 80s, I think, were these Nigerian dwarfs. And they, I think they originally, um, the story was then that they had been sort of discovered in the zoos. They were, they'd come in with the pygmies, um, 
I think they came in as actually feed for the big cats that were coming in from West Africa or whatever. And so um, people started realizing that there was West African dwarf goats that were different than the pygmies, which are um, heavier in bone. They tend to be in a goody coat or, you know, uh, they look like uh, they got always have a winter coat, I guess. Um, they're a little shorter bodied and shorter coupled. And then there was this more uh, long bodied, uh, still short in stature, uh, more dairy type goat and it seemed to breed true although the quality was all over the map like any any breed that isn't carefully managed and so people began to uh that kind of name them and they talked about nigerian dwarf and and that got bandied about and kicked back and forth uh a lot and eventually that name did stick nigerian dwarf and of course as you know they now are registered with American Dairy Goat Association. That was something that no one ever believed was going to happen because they were very concerned about whether or not they their bloodlines would make their way into the other breeds. It wasn't a popular thing to do at all, to crossbreed something, although when you were doing your own thing at home, you could kind of do your own thing. Um, and then a kind of a lesser known story is that my my Nigerian dwarf herd, when I decided to switch to this new thing I was doing, was purchased by um, a corporation that was operating in the Plattsburgh Air Force Base that had been shut down. I think their name was, can't remember, I'd have to look it up, but they're known as the spider gene goat, and they were creating uh, milk that would turn into some kind of body armor. And they actually told me they were going to be doing um, research on, um, you know, doing like in vitro fertilization kind of things with goats, um, that kind of thing. But they actually were doing the spider gene thing, which I did not know at the time when I sold them. And that was not super popular. <laughs> But they actually did produce that. That is the thing. Mm -hmm. If you yeah. look that up, yeah. um, that actually did happen. And I, I sold them their first 20 goats that they that they started with to do that, which was just a kind of a weird thing that happened in, uh, in back in the day. Um, so I, I switched to I wanted something smaller. I really liked the Nigerians a lot. What I, I wanted, though, was something slightly larger that had um, a bigger, you know, a little bigger stature so that I could reach under it and milk and I could actually possibly use a little milk machine and, and all those things. But I wanted it small enough to still be easy to handle. Um, I could have more in my small acreage. Um, I really like the Nubians. I like their temperament. I Everybody likes those puppy dog ears. And um, they were uh, awfully large. They were very large. They were one of the larger goats at the time. Um, they also were a nice dual purpose goat. Um, they dress out well if you're going to be eating Chevin. So that was seemed like 
an ideal animal to breed and possibly bring down in size. And and how I got the idea was because someone started the Kinder Goat Association. And that showed up in maybe uh, Ruminations, I think might have been the one that had the article. And I thought, man, that's what I want to do. So I contacted them and got all the information. And I said, listen, I have Nigerian dwarf goats. It's a West African dwarf. Is there any problem with me? Uh, using those and they didn't think so and then we uh, began to do that and I'd say more of them were out in Jeannie's neck of the woods out in the Pacific Northwest and uh, so she ran into some I never actually ever ran into any kinder goats in the Northeast um, other than what I was doing so I raised them for a couple of years I had like I was heading I think my kid crop was going to third generation and the Kindergarten Association um, contacted me and said, we have decided that only pygmy crosses with Nubians will be considered for kinder goats. And, um, you know, because we're really looking for the, the dual purpose meat and milk. And so we would, you know, we're sorry, but, you know, we're, we're not going to continue to register the goats that are crossed with Nigerian dwarf. And so I just kind of put my feelers out there and said, hey, is anybody else doing this? And and Jeannie popped up and she said, in fact, I am. And, um, you know, we, we, we discussed a lot of things back in the day, back and forth. Um, and, and Jeannie said, well, she was going to start a registry. So... I went ahead and, and registered with Miniature Dairy Goat Association, and that, that gave my goats a home. And uh, Jeannie was the only other one that had been doing it enough years to have anything that you could actually purchase that was up in the generations. The first generation or two were pretty airplane-eared and all over, you know, as far as their confirmation and so forth. Um, I had some I called maxi Nubians because they got just as big as the <laughs> Nubians did. Um, just, you know, depends on what's what. And um, so I purchased a buck from Jeannie called In a Veil Curious George and shipped him in from Oregon. That was a big adventure for me um, in those days. And um, he was an awful nice little guy and he produced some real nice babies for me. And then I had a little buck named Ranger who was out of my favorite golden doe. I had these real pretty gold ones and uh, a real pretty color. And, um, and I bred a little while, a few more years. I had, I got some pendulous ears finally, which I was pretty happy with and nice udders and a nice quantity of milk, a nice size and real good temperament. So I was committed to the mini Nubian, they, they were promising to be a very nice breed of goat. I'm curious, what were some of y'all's conversations or topics of conversations when y'all were going back and forth talking about your breeding programs? Did you ever get a chance to show yours at all, Pat? Um, just little local, like county fair, you know, and I didn't do well 
because there wasn't anything but a crossbreed class. There was nothing like a kindergarten class. And so, like you, I got put down for stature. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, we had, when I started, when I started MDGA, the first couple of years, I let anybody who put on a show have a sanction for free. I didn't charge for the sanctions because that made it possible for people to show them with MDA credit without having large numbers. And that was the best way to get people to see them. Uh, we, I, my local fair, we actually managed to have two shows each year. And um, at first, my husband said, well, why are you doing this? You're competing against yourself. And I said, I'm trying to get the judges and the people to see them. And it really mm -hmm. worked well. Uh, most of the time I was running MDGA, we didn't charge for sanctions for that reason. And after I gave up MDGA, I was really disappointed to see that the number of shows got smaller because we had quite a few uh, people raising them up here in the Pacific Northwest at that point. Mm -hmm. Well, y'all have got a couple uh, shows that go on up there, Jeannie. I think the Northwest Classic or Wine Wine Country Classic. And there's some, um, I, I think it's, it's yeah. fun because the shows, and that's one of my other passions, um, to get more clubs across the country and get more people showing so they can learn more about what makes a good quality dairy goat. Um, but we've, we've started up back here in Texas and we've put on multiple yeah. shows. So it's been really fun. Yeah, that, that was something I didn't get a lot of opportunity to do. I think I represented more of the, the homesteader looking for, to, to purpose the goat. I did, um, I did some showing and I, I locally judged, I think I judged our county fair for about eight years, which is one of the reasons why I didn't show my goats there because I couldn't judge and show at the same time. I was pretty committed to our 4-Hers and, and trying to help goats in general just be better quality in people's backyards than, than what we had. We were not in an area that, that had... Um, a lot of really good herds or well-known herds of dairy goats, um, maybe down toward our capital district in Southern New York, there was a little more activity going on down there and Midwest, uh, Midwestern New York. Um, but there was um, a tremendous interest at, in the time at the beginning of the goat milk soap market, which has just gone crazy uh, now. And I was doing that um, with the milk as well. So that was kind of my thing. Um, but I was always nice very interested. I'm sorry, go ahead. One of the nice things about the mini Nubians is that they, the combination of the Nigerian and the Nubian puts a lot of butter fat into that milk and it makes really good milk. Um, I always used to think the Nigerians had uh, condensed milk because their milk was so uh, high in butterfat that they could raise quads comfortably, even though they didn't mm -hmm. have as much milk as a big goat. But. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I had several sets of quads, um, and, and I had them in the mini Nubians in the early days, too. I had a couple of sets. Yeah, that was uh, fairly common. And you're right, the butterfat made for really nice uh, soap, very very high quality. As a matter of fact, I, I was one of the few people that mixed it with some water because it was just um, so concentrated. 
Um, and it still made as good a soap as, as anybody that used full milk. But yes, I, I was very interested in classification. And that was something that I did get to do. Um, I had a dairy, an ADGA judge who was doing classification. Um, the old, uh, cla- the original classification before this linear that they're doing now, or at least that's what they were doing when I was done with goats. Um, and it was very easy to understand and it helped me to, um, you know, just make decisions about what I was looking for in terms of, um, how to improve, um, my goats in the next generation. Not, it wasn't all about the ears and the Roman noses, although that was extremely important. Um, and you know, in, in the early days, it was hard to get um, quality dairy goats to use for your breeding program. Um, people were rather uneasy that we were going to use them for crossbreeding. Um, but, you know, they definitely um, have made a market. I, it, one of the amusing things that happened in recent history, when I moved to Louisa, Virginia, which is a very small rural county um, north of Richmond, sort of triangulated between Fredericksburg, Richmond, and Charlottesville. Um, And uh, I picked up a little magazine called Louisa Life newspaper that comes out about every other month. And I think it was the first time I'd seen one of them. And on the front cover was a lady with two Nubian goats. and, um, And it said right on the cover in big letters, you know, um, this farm raises miniature Nubian goats. And that was uh, 2018, 2017, 2018. And I I said, what? That's still a thing? I didn't even realize because I had lost track of everybody. And so I I went to meet this young lady named uh, Shirley Keppel. She actually um, has a nice little herd of them here in Louisa. And um, she had brought a buck I think from Oregon or Washington state or her sire came from and uh, they're very nice type uh, I had purchased a couple of weathers from her just to have on the farm here for the kids but uh, they were unfortunately way too friendly and the kids were a little taken back by them and then um, they decided the best thing to do would be to choose the miniature horses manes and tails and we couldn't separate them so I found a young man who just was dying to have some goats because his dad had cows and he wasn't allowed to play with them. So he gave them a real nice home. (laughs) But, you know, I I was so delighted to learn that this breed survived. Um, I did a lot of uh, stepping up and helping with publications. Dwarf Digest got let go because the person had been doing it for years and it was in the day of the little newsletter that you'd print up on a, on a printing machine and then you'd mail it out to everybody. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, then we got computers, we could make something and we mailed it out. And then, you know, we got to be able to do like newsletters and Yahoo groups and all those crazy things from back in the day, uh, pre predecessors to the Facebook that we do now. And um, so I stepped up and said, well, I'll do it. So I did Dwarf Digest for a little bit. And that's probably uh, 
some of how, um, you know, we got, Jeannie and I got connected, but, you know, I think our, our early, a lot of our early discussions were, um, which lines of Nubians were, gave us the best type, um, you know, what we were going to select for, for the next generation. Um, it, it was pretty important because there were so few of us that we kind of, we kind of were in each other's herd books, if you will. We, we kind of got real familiar with the background of each other's bloodlines that we were using because we didn't have an awful lot to pick from and you didn't want to go back too many times and start over because it would have taken forever. I think we, we kind of came down to where we almost had to have six generations in order to really get anything that was going to read true. Mm-hmm. True. And here in the Pacific Northwest, if you look at most of the, the ones that are higher generations, they all go back to either Hidden Creek or Echo Hills, which are really nice animals, but there's a limit to how much you can reuse the same stuff over and over again. And I'm glad to see now that a lot more people are starting over. It's not easy to do, but we need more bloodlines. And uh, there's even a Facebook site now for people that are, are, you know, early generations of mini minis because um, we need more bloodlines. Yeah, I know a lot of folks. uh, That's really good to hear. And I, and I've heard from some of the breeders as I've gotten back in and, and Carrie, you could probably, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, a lot more quality Nubians are, are, you know, people are able to access, you know, more quality Nubians than we were back in the day. You know, people were quite close to the idea that we'd use them for crossbreeding. Yeah, they're, unfortunately, they're... a lot of new breeders are trying to judge their animals by the number of generations, which is unfortunate because mm-hmm. after you get to like second or third generation, you're, you're there enough. Uh, you don't need to, um, I mean, I have a purebred buck and he's really, really nice, but he's not that much nicer than my second or third generation buck that I also use because he's different bloodlines. But yeah, that's mm-hmm. definitely that's one of the things need to learn. with the generations, um, I mean, even myself, I'll admit it, and we're going to have a podcast episode about it. But when I was learning about many Nubians, you know, you oh, okay, well, sixth generation, that's purebred. Well, purebred, that must be the best. And so I want, you know, I want purebred. And so that was just, you know, the more that I've gotten into it and learned about it, I have a blog that just like, you know, don't even look at the generation, look at the quality of the goat, the milk, the bloodlines. Um, you know, and once you get, once you get to the third generation, if you're, if you meet the breed type by third generation, they then become Americans. Mm -hmm. And once you get to that point, it's just a question of, you know, what, what was behind them, not necessarily Mm -hmm. whether a third generation is better than a seventh generation, because at that point you're, that's Mm -hmm. up to you. That's what you're breeding. Mm -hmm. But by by the time you get it to be an American, it meets the breed type, and hopefully you used good animals behind that, and that's good enough, at least in my opinion. Right. To, yeah. To Pat, to yeah. your point, there that's are good. some there are some herds, um, some Nubian herds that will not sell to many Nubian breeders still. But the good news is there are a lot of great herds that will sell 
to many breeders. Um, and so you can really infuse mm -hmm. some good bloodlines. And there are a lot of good Nubian breeders that have become many Nubian breeders. Exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that happens. That happens a lot. And, and, you know, I think one of the things I, I always um, was a, a little bit, you know, kind of, I, I guess the word jealous is, is a rather strong word, but um, was, any of the Swiss, more Swiss looking um, breeds such as, you know, Sanins and, and uh, Oberhasli and, and all those, which I was an early Oberhasli breeder before they were anything worth having. Um, you know, they were just we getting started. <laughs> yeah, they, they are, they are so easy to breed because, you know, you, you don't have to try so hard to get a different, uh, ear and face, you know, that whole and, and body, that whole Nubian type is, is, uh, you know, the Nigerians are a very Swiss looking. Um, so that kind of helps you out a lot. I was, you have to worry about white spots getting on them. You have to make the color work. And that might be harder than getting a Nubian green type. You could be right about that. Yes. If they're sticking with that, you're right. Um, and, you know, I was always stunned by how quickly that La Mancha ear stuck. Um, they, they got, the, you know, they got that pretty quickly. It's a pretty powerful gene, apparently. But it was, it was uh, unnatural because the La Manchas were so cute that they came right behind the mini Nubian almost immediately. And then some of the others started to come. But the, I think the mini Nubian was really the first miniaturized as as I remember it that that was that was the vanguard and then the mini manchas were right behind it and then a few other people said what wait you know I like this other kind of goat and I sure wish that I had something that was a little more manageable and uh, in terms of size and um, you know I really think that it uh, it's time has come especially right now as people are thinking more about raising their own food having their gardens and their chickens and things like that that the miniature dairy goat fits on the family farm um and so the serious breeder has you know quite a a decent uh market for you know their babies to the family farm, I would think, and I, I think that's a, a, a really good thing that, you know, you're all um, making it more widely known that they're available because that was, that was the whole point was to, to reach out to the family homesteader type person and have something that, that they would uh, have something worth having that would, you know, that, that would be um, a family animal, valuable and manageable by the whole family. And also, uh, though, as you got older, that, that happened with miniature horses. As people got older, they got their horse fixed by getting something really small that wouldn't kind of drag you around so much, not that they're not still pretty powerful. But at any rate, yeah, that, that was, that was the thing, I think. And, um, I'm really glad that it not only survived but thrived. I'm I'm thrilled. Me too. 
Me too, because I, you know, when we first started this, we weren't sure it would work, especially with some of the breeds that were harder to get. But I agree with you about the La Mancha, because I recently got back into the mini La Manchas. As I get older, I find them a little easier to deal with. <laughs> They're more willing to do things than my mini Nubians are the first couple of years. Mm-hmm. And But I have a friend who has been a long-time La Mancha breeder. And she breeds her first fresheners to Nigerians just for easy kidding. And she was taking those kids to the auction. And I said, wait a minute, <laughs> you're taking your best quality animals and, and they could be mini La Manchas and you're just selling them to the auction yard. So uh, I've bought one from her for the last couple of years and they're just stunning. And you're right, by the second generation, the ears are fine. Not that I mind elf ears yeah. at all, but. By the time I breed them the second time around, I get the smaller ears and they're really yeah, nice. Okay. And another point about the other breeds is the very first uh, champion mini in, in the, uh, that got registered with MDGA was a miniature Sonnen. Hmm. Interesting. And, uh, she belonged to Stacey Morris from Flyaway Farms here in Oregon. And she showed her against the, the full-size dairy goats for three years in a row at our fair. And she beat the large animals every single time and got her championship. Isn't that something? That's amazing. No, you made a good point, Jeannie. I think that's, I think it was more, it was more planned than not planned that people thought of the Nigerian to breed to their first fresheners for a more manageable first kidding. I think that happened more often than not. And people you know, cause, because selling your babies for me was fine. It makes for easier kidding the first time around, but it also shows them, okay, if this first freshener doesn't turn out the way I like, I'm not going to be tempted to keep her kids. Mm-hmm. But if it Precisely. does turn out all right, then you've got a really nice mini to keep. Um, yeah. So it, it was interesting, you know, the, the there was sort of some aha moments all over the map with other other reasons for making the cross, some being accidents, but many of them being deliberate, but not for the reason of, of breeding miniature dairy goats. And a few people said, well, then I think I like this better. And there's, you all know, if you're doing it, that this is an adventure. You know, you're pioneers, you're doing something new and exciting and different and and it's you know it is hard to take a nice dairy goat and and breed a line of dairy goats that's your own that's that's quality and it's definitely um a challenge but when you're doing something like an outcross and trying to make it work uh, it's like any new breed it's exciting and and it's it's a real adventure and you have to look at it that way you have to you have to realize you're a pioneer even people who are doing it today, like Jeannie said, you've got to go back and start over because there weren't enough people doing it. Like I said, there was only Jeannie and me, really. She was really the only one at the time that I could say, hey, can I buy something from you that was going to be different than what I had? Everybody here in this, in the area that I was in in New York, their stuff was all related to mine because they bought it from me. So it was you know, that we, we had nothing. And so when I bought Curious George, I brought in, you know, something for everybody. 
And there is a young lady in uh, Broad Alban uh, who is still breeding them. She's never registered anything, but she's she has a little farm uh, stand and so forth, and she has them. And she, they, they're quite nice. She's had a, a lot of them over the years. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I I'm pretty impressed with the quality. I started out originally with some really nice Nubians and some really nice Nigerians, all lines that did really well in the show ring. But I was really picky about what I kept. And that's why at this point, I don't have purebreds in my herd. I, I have Americans. But, um, you know, it, it, my goal was not to get the purebred. My goal was to have good animals that I felt good about selling to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's where a lot of the enthusiasts are right now as they're learning more about the generations and like, hey, you know, I d- it doesn't matter that much. Um, I, I can have, you know, just like you said, Genia, a third generation can be just as nice or nicer than seventh if those bloodlines weren't good getting up to those seventh and eighth generations. So, well, what mm-hmm. is one thing that you guys... Um, so I was just doing the math, and it's been over 25 years since you guys kind of went down. I mean, you, obviously you were in goats for that longer, but MGGA started in 1995, 96. So, uh, do, you know, it's been a while. Um, how? Uh, what's one thing that surprises you to where the mini breeds are today? Maybe one thing positive and maybe one thing that we need to improve on. Mm a good question <laughs> I guess what surprises me the most is is maybe just the emphasis these days on color mm-hmm. both um, spots and eye color um, I know many years ago I know when I saw my first blue-eyed goats they were very poor quality and I didn't want to have anything to do with them but they've been bred to so many good animals in the last 20 years that now you know there's lots of quality blue-eyed goats out there. And although that's not something I breed for, um, I have a few in my herd, and some of them are quite striking with those blue eyes. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm also finding that although a lot of people want spotted goats when they first get into them, I'm also finding people that want roans. I had somebody this year that wanted black and white goats. So um, one thing I like about the La Manchas and the Nubians is the variety and color that we can get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can really get something for everyone. So, yeah. Oh, sure. Well, I think the thing that the thing that surprised me when when I found the Louisa Life with uh, the mini Nubians on it was that it was still a thing. I think when I was done, I had gotten very involved in in my human services career and um, wasn't able to continue to milk dairy goats and whatnot um we were still in the maybe this will work stage and you know it was still uh considered just a crossbred and not really a a breed and you know Jeannie Jeannie knows the struggle more than anybody because she was um the one who was who stepped up and created a registry so that you know it could be a thing and um, and this other thing that surprised me was what nice type they were, how much um, they resembled that 
gleam I had in my eye in that day, what I wanted to see, what I hoped to have, I wouldn't say that very many of mine um, really looked like that, um, that what I wanted, we, you know, there were, they were headed in the right direction. I know I, I felt sure we would get them, but I wasn't getting them at the time. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm real proud of uh, people for, for being willing to say, you know what, um, we need new bloodlines. Um, there's plenty of uh, nice Nubians and nice Nigerians out there that we could bring in some new blood and I'm willing to start over and deal with the, you know, airplane ears for a, a couple of years and, um, and see if we can bring something in so that we have enough genetic material to keep everything going. So um, I don't know enough about it to say that, you know, anything is, is maybe something to guard against, but I've heard both of you say that just be careful being too anxious to have that sixth generation so-called purebred. Remember, it's still just six generations of the fact that we cross these guys. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's a, it's not a magic number. You, you need quality, you need type. Um, and the appropriate size and whatnot. So don't be too um, determined to get there. Um, Y'all have have done 25 years of work (laughs) and uh, you've gotten a a long way and and you don't want to paint yourself into a corner by not bringing in some new blood. That's extremely important. That's something... I'm working with a very rare breed of horse right now, and you can't go get more genetic material with these guys. And so we're keeping extremely close tabs through genetic testing and everything on the crosses that are done with them. And believe me, you don't want to be in a place where you just don't have enough genetic material and you start getting, you know, some really bad stuff showing up. So that would be my my caution is be brave, go forward, um, forge a new line, if if you will. Okay, so like a fun fact, curiosity question. I know doing some research for this episode, I did come across at one point that we were calling them dwarf Nubians. Was that something that either of you were involved and then we finally decided on miniature Nubian or miniature dairy goats? Uh, can y'all share a little more for the listeners on that? <laughs> well, I can tell you my opinion on that one. <laughs> if, if you know anything about genetics at all, you know that a pygmy is actually a miniature of something, whereas a dwarf is more, um, it's a gene that makes animals look a little bit you know, like out of shape, different size. It's, it's kind of a different thing. And when, when the Nigerians first came, um, became popular, I had a real problem with calling them dwarfs because they are not a dwarf animal. They are a miniature dairy goat. Mm-hmm. Whereas the mm-hmm. pygmy goat is definitely a dwarfed animal, but they call them pygmies. But they got the name first, so we couldn't 
use it. And um, <laughs> when I started MDGA, there was a lot of talk about that because they wanted to call them dwarf Nubians because they were Nigerian dwarf crosses. And I didn't want that name on there because it's not technically correct as far as genetics go. So that's when I came up with the mini Nubian. Now I know there were other people that were calling them other things. Some people wanted to call them, I want to think there was another one. Oh, oh, I know Cheryl Smith wants to call her, um, her goats uh, Oberon. Over, over um, I can't remember now, but um, it was hard coming up with a name that everybody could agree on. But that was my opinion as far as why I picked Mini for MBGA rather than Dwarf. Jeannie, well, you, I had a very amusing thing that happened to me which made me agree with Jeannie. I was originally <laughs> one of the ones that was like, hey, dwarf Nubian, it's Nigerian dwarf, cross with a Nubian. It, it, I didn't really, I, I wasn't firm on any of it. I'm just like, okay, well, I see, you know, I see your point. And I liked mini Nubian. I thought, you know, miniature Nubian or miniature dairy goat, that was, that was more representative of what we were trying to do. But I had advertised somewhere that something about dwarf Nubians or whatever. And I literally had some guy contact me who was thinking that um, it was some, uh, I think it might have been like a Yahoo group or something that we had started. And some fella came on and he, he was thinking that we were like, some kind of maybe a, a possibly kinky thing or something that you know for people you know Gosh. and you know Nubian people and I was like oh lord we have to drop that name immediately <laughs> because because it made no sense at all but you know that was that I I just got a, a kind of a, a laugh out of that and I said wow you know poof there's weirder people than us out there doing crazy things. But um, yeah, like, like Jeannie says, there's nothing, there's nothing more pitiful than uh, a miniature horse. That's a dwarf. Um, and, so, and that happens fairly with some regularity and they have a lot of um, health problems as do little people in our, our culture. And, and we definitely are not, breeding for that I know some people who kind of think that's cute and they sort of they kind of look for that and they're not real breeders but you know it's it's not because one of the things you need is is very strong structure in order to maintain we ask a lot of our goats we ask a lot and we want to have strong legs and feet you know you think a lot about udders and course we think about ears and faces when we think about Nubians or La Manchas but you've got to have the rest of the body structure good and sound and sturdy and the conformation it's good conformation for a reason and so you don't want to give the idea that you're you're entertaining the idea of anything that would be dwarf but yeah that that was quite a discussion wasn't it that was uh that was well, I, you know, I raised, uh, I raised rabbits for a while, and the Nigerian dwarf breed, if you got a double dwarf gene from two parents, the, the babies wouldn't live. Mm. 
it's a detrimental gene and you can have it on one side and you have a small rabbit, but if you get it from both parents, they're really tiny and they don't live. And that probably mm. uh, was the part of my thinking as well. That I just didn't like the connotation of dwarf because it's not a very good gene. It can happen in dogs too. It can happen in a lot of animals and it's a lethal gene yeah. in some situations. Yeah, it goes. Yeah, that's that's a fact. That's true. It's it's true in a lot of different breeds of animals that lethal double um, recessive. Yep. So anyway, but, you know, it's it's quite amazing know, that it's been twenty five years. <laughs> you know, uh, you you mentioned being out of it for a while. I after I moved back from. New Mexico uh, around 2000. That's when I, I had to go back to work and I gave up the registry because I just didn't have the time to put into it. It was growing too fast from my ability to do it. And I passed it on to someone else. Um, but where was I going with that? Um, I forgot where I was going to go. <laughs> well, Jeannie, while you're thinking of that, um, I had a question. So when you started MDGA and the registration started coming in, um, what did that look like from the beginning? Obviously, you mentioned the first Finnish champion was a uh, mini, I think you said a Sonnen, right? Mini Sonnen. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how, what was it proportionally way more mini Nubians and then the La Manchas kind of came in after? Can you share a little bit about your, your history when you were... Um, they're running MDGA? Yes, the, the Nubians were the biggest at the beginning. And we got some mini La Manches. There were a couple, Alisa Helgeson and um, Donna, there's another lady named Donna, I can't remember her last name, that lived in Utah. They were raising uh, mini La Manches, really nice ones. And there were a few people up in Washington, but it was mostly Nubians. And then the few Alpines, Sonnens, and um, Cheryl Smith started the Oberhalsies and she did those for a long time. So we had, you know, tricklings of the other. I find it interesting that the Golden Guernseys are now represented. In yes, I was way. just, I have those a friend who's even get one. Yeah, I have a friend who's going to be getting into some mini Guernseys. So that's exciting. Yeah. I looked into yeah, them once at I... one time, just the big ones, and I couldn't even get them into the country. So I'm mm -hmm. glad that they have some now. Yep. Um, I don't know. I see MDJ is doing Nigerians now too, and I don't know how many they're getting, but I guess they're miniatures as well. Yeah. 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 I'm surprised so, that there that there's another place that they would register Nigerian dwarfs once they got into American Derigo Association. I figured that would there there were what you may not realize is is there were several different registries. And and sometimes we would have our our goats triple registered, or even more, and yeah. registries came and went too. There was a lot of of movement in the Nigerian I, dwarf. I shared these numbers. I also on... I also started uh, NDGA, which is the organization, the breed club for the Nigerians. Nigerians. I was the first president, and I did the newsletter for a long time while I was in New Mexico because I had time to do it. Um, and that was our big push was to see if we could get in ADGA because we felt like even though we had a wonderful registry with AGF, I just felt like if they were dairy goats, they should be registered with all the dairy goat organizations. And I'm so happy that they finally got them accepted there. 
Yeah, I think I did some research and they were accepted into AGDA in 2005 and then they started showing in 2010. I believe that's correct. If not, listeners, please feel free to email me and correct me. But you guys are going to be blown away by this. I don't know if y'all know the AGDA numbers, um, but the number of Nigerian dwarfs registered with AGDA in 2020, 29,418. They're the top, they're the top uh, number yeah. registered with ADGA now, and they didn't want them to begin with. And they probably saved them at one point because for a while, ADGA's numbers were down during the last recession. They weren't having as many registrations. Yeah, I think but, for the many Nubians with MDGA, something. we're up to probably, I know some of my goats were, reason, were in the 11,000, but that's just total. So we're probably up into the 12,000 total and, uh, uh, the when I got my first Nigerian dwarfs, there were 900 of them registered with AGS. Wow. And I was the first person to have them in Oregon because they, they just weren't any. But, you know, they're pretty prolific. It didn't take them long to uh, take over. <laughs> that's a fact. You know, that's, that's really fascinating because um, I remember being, like, stuck out there, like, three people doing this, you know, back way back then there just, there weren't people doing it. And then, you know, gradually more and more people came, Uh, you know, Leia was one of the second generation, you know, founders of all of the breeds. And um, it just, it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's fascinating to see how many there are. And I, I think the number of Nigerians being registered by ADGA really says what we saw, that we looked down the road and we said, people don't want goats to be so big. Yeah, if they, wanted a, if they wanted a cow, they'd get a cow, right? They'd get a cow. <laughs> that was a joke. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly right. I had, I had right. that we used to call ponies. Some of my, po- <laughs> my bucks looked like ponies. They yes. were so big. Mm-hmm. That was way yep. back. Some but, of my ponies know, are probably smaller than your bucks. <laughs> the wonderful thing is the quality yeah. that the Nigerians have taken on. Remember, you talked about the differences in them, like little gold ones were heavier, more like a pygmy, and the and the uh, some of the other ones were more dairy. And now they are all just amazing. I haven't seen a bad Nigerian in a long time. Yeah, they really show no, up for, not for the, the shows too. Ones. Yeah. Yeah, we, uh, pretty here, fascinating. Here in Texas, we put on, we decided to change one of our shows. We put on our mini Nubian show with MDGA, and then we decided to put on an Agda show and just have Nigerians and Nubians. It's like, this is what makes a mini Nubian, and we had a really nice turnout. Um, and they, it was, it, was, it, it was really interesting for the people that just came to watch to really see, so... Um, that's a, a great way to do it. Well, ladies, we've been chatting for a while now. Um, I'll just kind of open it up for you for last kind of co- closing comments. Uh, before I do that, just want to thank you again, uh, both of you from the bottom of my heart, because this was so uh, great just to get you ladies on and uh, get talking about this and being able to share this with our listeners. So I'll turn it over to you for uh, some closing comments. Jeannie, you want to go first? Well, I appreciate what you've done. Um, 
nowadays podcasts are the thing and uh, everybody you know that wants to know more information that's where they're going to get it from there's a lot of things that new breeders are asking me these days so i can refer them to your podcast because it sounds like you're going to cover a lot of the things that they ask me about when i talk to them so I appreciate you doing this, and it's been fun to kind of think back at what we had done in the past, right, Pat? It has been fun. It, it's it, it's kind of a weird feeling to to look back and say, "Gee, I was a pioneer." I you know wasn't really thinking in those terms at, at the time, but I was thinking about making sure that what I did was responsible and was was something worth having. And I think that if I had anything to say to new breeders or, or current breeders, it's just keep that, you know, keep keeping on what you're doing um, because it goats are one generation away from becoming poor if bad choices are made. And of course, the great thing about goats is you can go, you know, kind of etch a sketch because there's, there's a five month gestation, but um you know, it's it's fascinating to see the number of people that just have um, a, a zeal for this type of thing, and it's it's gratifying. Um, I, I felt sort of somewhat alone back in the day, and I it's so nice to see that there's plenty of company at this point. One last comment I'd like to make is when I was being a judge, I used to go, I'd judge a whole ring full of goats and they would all be good goats. But the person that was at the bottom of the line, usually it wasn't for any big reason. It could often be just a small reason. And I always used to tell people, don't go home and get rid of this goat just because you're last in the line today. What counts is what you want to see in your field and what your goat brings to you. Because in the end, that's what it's really all about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. I love that. I love that. Well, goat friends, um, let's uh, thank Pat and Jeannie for joining us today on our History of Mini Dairy Goat episode. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. We've got a lot more episodes in the works, uh, but this one's going to be hard to top. So um, goat friends, uh, happy goating, and we'll check in with you guys later. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to the Mini Dairy Goat Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast for our new episodes. Share the podcast, tell all your goat friends about us, rate and review the podcast, and also you can hit us up on our Facebook page, Mini Dairy Goat Podcast, for more information and show notes. Thank you so much and happy goating.